I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. Today we're talking about loneliness, since I think it is one of the most significant problems of our time, and every indication is that it's only getting worse. But the good thing here is that there are definitely many things you can do about loneliness. Before turning to that topic, though, I'd like to take a moment to remind everyone that the Gautamer course will be starting in October. So many people look back on college as the four best years of their life. A lot of this is certainly due to the new sense of freedom, the lasting friendships, and for some, a bit of revelry on the weekends. I suspect that for many people, college wouldn't be one of those times where you'd feel particularly lonely. In fact, one of the wonderful things about attending college is that you're usually with a large cohort of people with whom you probably share many things. One thing about the college experience that many don't realize until they've graduated is that it's the time when you are able to take four years of your life and just focus on learning. Whether you're taking intro to accounting or Taylor Swift or history and literature through Taylor Swift, and if you're wondering, yes, that was a real class offered at UT Austin in 2022, it's a rare gift to be able to dedicate yourself so completely to topics that you're really interested in. In this spirit, I'd like to invite you back into the classroom to study Hans-Gerd Gadamer, a man that I knew both as a teacher and friend and a philosopher that I think will change the way you see the world. If scheduling is a concern for you, please know that we'll be setting up a poll for all of those who are interested so we can set up dates and times that work for everyone. If the cost of the course, 200 for those who don't subscribe on Patreon, 160 for anyone who subscribes on Patreon up to October the 1st. Please know that we are more than happy to work with you to make sure that resources do not present a barrier. For those of you that are interested, please don't hesitate to get in touch with any questions. We can be reached by email at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can send us a DM on Twitter, or X as it's now called, at onbecomingpodcast. If you find the podcast is helpful for your own journey of becoming, do consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Some of you know that I owned a house in Wheaton that I truly loved. Some of you have probably been there for one reason or the other. One of the things I most loved about living there was that I could accommodate up to 150 people for a party or event. I loved to give parties there. It was one of the things I most enjoyed, helping others connect and feel part of a community. There are few things that are better than that. I also loved having my students over the house, students who were in my courses, and also from the philosophy department in general. Mainly the annual pizza party was usually held there. I've always thought that things like this, having people over, were just as important as philosophical views or anything theoretical. You might find it interesting to know that to some extent, that desire to provide opportunities for connection stems from the kind of philosophy I work on. You've heard me mention Gautamer many times, but one of the reasons why Gautamer has been so helpful to me is that he has a really good idea of the importance of community. Partly that's due to his emphasis on the centrality of tradition. What else is tradition than inheriting ways of being from our ancestors and being influenced by our social context? What I've not mentioned before is that Gadamer is an Hegelian. Let me try and explain that just briefly. Immanuel Kant had a very strong sense of the individuality of human beings. He encourages us in more than one places, 
one more more than one place uh, his essay what is enlightenment but also in the third critique to think for ourselves rather than simply adopt what other people think in one sense this is good advice you probably shouldn't just uncritically adopt whatever practices or beliefs people around you might have but here's the problem you can't really think for yourself you can choose from various ways of thinking that other people have adopted, but the idea that you could all by yourself figure out everything is simply unworkable. Here's where Hegel, I think, is a better guide. He thinks that we're not even able to be individual selves apart from the community recognizing us as individual. That's right. The only way you'll be able to see yourself as an individual is if others see you as that. As human beings, we are born in a very precarious state. We simply cannot care for ourselves immediately after birth and for many years thereafter. Instead, we're utterly dependent upon people raising us who inevitably influence us in deep and profound ways. Further, what we now know about human beings is that we are hardwired for connection. We are intensely social beings. No man is an island, John Donne reminds us, Every man is a piece of the continent. I think that's completely true. I've long thought that the emphasis of in the, the kind of I've long thought that the kind of emphasis someone like Kant puts on the individual can be unhealthy. Though the reality is that our society has become much more Kantian. We continue to put great emphasis on the individual and the opportunities to be part of a community are shrinking. Of course, I don't mean to suggest that every person's desire for connection is a light. Some people greatly enjoy being alone, and other people can barely stand being alone. So there's already from the beginning a difference between us that some of us have a stronger need for connection than others. I've had long conversations with friends as to whether I'm an introvert with a high tendency towards extroversion, or whether I'm an extrovert who also likes to be alone. I don't know the answer to this question, but I do know this. One of the things I most loved about the academic life was that it demanded periods of intense and usually solitary focus. We call it research. Yet equally demanded periods of being with other people in the form of teaching and advising. I liked both equally well. A marker for introversion or extroversion is often how you recharge. Do you get your energy from being with others or from being alone? My response is simple, though it doesn't fit the categories very neatly. I find that I get energy from both being alone and from being with other people. If you're listening to this episode but haven't listened to the one titled What is Religion, you might want to put that on your list. Although most of us think about established religions when we hear that word, I'm actually thinking about religion in a more basic sense, in the sense of the sociologist Emil Durkheim, who defines religion as an allegiance to something important that connects us to other people. So yes, the usual religions do that. But as you may have heard in the episode on football, I think football is every much of a religion as Christianity or Jainism. The most important part, though, is that religion is ultimately about connection. That connection can be conceived in terms of connection to God, but the connection to other people is important too. This is also why religion can never be inherently private, because it's about connection. And connection is one of the most fundamentally important aspects 
of a healthy life, right up there with what you eat. We know that poor, poor food choices can result in being unhealthy. And we know that exercise is also very helpful. In this episode, I want to lay out the problem of loneliness, first by considering what the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek H. Murthy, has said. He opens his opinion piece, it's dated the 30th of April, 2023, titled Surgeon General, We Have Become a Lonely Nation, It's Time to Fix That. He starts that with a story about someone who had won the lottery, who told him, Winning the lottery was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. Murthy continues that story by saying, Wealthy but alone, this once vivacious social man no longer knew his neighbors and had lost touch with his former co-workers. He soon developed high blood pressure and diabetes. Then Murthy goes on to talk about his own experience of loneliness. And I found this particularly encouraging that someone would be so upfront with his own personal problem. So here's what he says. I thought about his story, that's the guy who won the lottery, when I found myself struggling with loneliness. My first stint as Surgeon General had just ended. I was suddenly disconnected from the colleagues with whom I had spent most of my waking hours. It might not have been so bad had I not made a critical mistake. I had largely neglected my friendships during my tenure, convincing myself that I had to focus on work and I couldn't do both. And here I just have to insert something. Isn't that something that so many of us do? And then he continues, even when I was physically with the people I loved, I wasn't present. I was often checking the news and responding to messages in my inbox. After my job ended, I felt ashamed to reach out to friends I had ignored. I found myself increasingly lonely and isolated, and it felt as if I was the only one who felt that way. Loneliness, like depression, with which it can be associated, can chip away at your self-esteem and erode your sense of who you are. That's what happened to me. In case you're thinking, well, this story is an anomaly, he points out that one out of two Americans is experiencing loneliness at any given time to a degree that can be measured. Then he goes on to point out that loneliness has nothing to do with being an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're poor or you're wealthy, whether you're old or young. While there are many circumstances that can cause loneliness, the pandemic, the loss of a close friend or family member, health problems, financial difficulties, loneliness can arise without any of these more specific problems. What Murthy wants to make clear is that loneliness is not just something unpleasant. It can literally cause your death. Lack of social connection often leads to depression and anxiety. You can probably guess the main problem here is that once loneliness is compounded with anxiety and depression, you are probably less likely to reach out to someone, which means that your sense of loneliness will probably increase. But the effects of loneliness are much more dangerous than that. It increases your risk of heart disease by 29%, dementia by 50%, and stroke by 32%. Murthy has said that the effect upon your body is similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and that loneliness is much more likely to cause your death than if you were consuming six alcoholic drinks per day. Murthy also points out that loneliness is much more dangerous to your health than obesity. Stop just a moment to let that news sink in. It's not hard to see that loneliness spread across a community, 
makes that community less of a real community, with results like lower productivity at work and less achievement at school. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that there are things one can do to provide comfort or amelioration for loneliness. Murthyfer suggests that we strengthen social infrastructure by way of, and I'm quoting him, school-based programs that teach children about building healthy relationships, workplace design that fosters social connection, and community programs that bring people together. One of the reasons I talk so much about religion is that, for better or for worse, it appears that our ancestors were deeply connected by way of religion. In many of these ancient communities, singing and dancing together was a prime way of focusing on religion. It shouldn't be hard to see that if you're regularly dancing and singing with members of a community, your connection to them is going to be very significant. In these societies that we often call primitive, it would have been difficult to have felt loneliness simply because one was so deeply connected to the community. For some of us, that connection with others can still be found, at least to some extent, with existing forms of organized religion. There's a really good sociological reason why singing is so much a part of most Christian worship. Singing together with a group literally produces endorphins that make us feel connected. I've mentioned before that Christianity was likely a danced religion. That is, that dancing was an important part of the liturgy in early Christianity. Indeed, the most common explanation for why churches put in pews was that they kept people from spontaneously dancing. I remember talking to a colleague who oversaw student events at the college where I taught. Officially, students were allowed to square dance, since this was perceived as not having sexual connotations of regular dancing. But as the person said to me, it's really impossible to oversee these events and actually keep students from dancing. It's something that just happens naturally. The second goal for Murthy is that we renegotiate our relationship with technology. I've never been a Luddite, and so I'm not likely to denounce technology just because it's new. But it's always been the case, technological advances change our lives, sometimes quite significantly. I was visiting a student who had spent six months in the Philippines, and we spent a good deal of time at Manila's Worth Slum. One of the memories I have from that trip was of women and families working very hard to clean the clothes with a washboard and a plastic bucket. Ever since that visit, I am now extremely thankful for my washing machine. That's an example of how technology solved an obvious problem and lessened the drudgery in our lives. The technology that has given us the mobile phone has many benefits, but I think most of us are aware of the drawbacks. Tech connects us, but not even remotely to the same degree that talking to an actual person in the same physical space does. Even telephone conversations, which have the enormous benefit of allowing us to hear each other's voices and thus make the person more present, still don't reach the actual present that can only be had by being actually present. Well, cutting down time on texting or going down rabbit holes on the internet is a good thing. That's not sufficient. We have to replace that time with things that connect us more deeply, namely spending time with our friends, family, and neighbors. Murthy's third way of building connections is that we begin with small steps. He puts it like this. It could be spending 15 minutes each day to reach out to people we care about. 
introducing ourselves to our neighbors, checking on our coworkers who may be having a hard time, sitting down with people with different views to get to know and understand them, and seeking opportunities to serve others, recognizing that helping people is one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness. Note that last point. Helping people is one of the most powerful antidotes to loneliness. If there's any takeaway from this episode, I hope that that will be it. You've heard the reasons why I do this podcast, so I'm not going to repeat them here. But I should add that one of the main reasons for doing the podcast is that I'm hoping to connect people. Let me put this in a different way. While I do criticize various people in the evangelical world for not taking Jesus' teaching seriously enough, I only do that to the extent that I feel it's necessary to go out unhealthy habits or ways of being. My primary goal is that of uniting rather than dividing. One of the things I find so problematic about many podcasts is that they sound like the chief purpose is to instill fear and promote hatred. I'm not trying to do any of those things. Instead, I'm trying to help build a sense of community since I think it's one of the greatest lacks in modern society. Murthy described his own journey from loneliness to more connection as follows. For me, it took more than a year of struggling with pain and shame of loneliness, but eventually found my footing. I didn't do it on my own. My mother, my Atreide, my father, Halligari, and sister, Rushmi, called me every day to remind me that they loved me for who I was. My wife, Alice, reminded me that the light that she had seen when we first met was still there, even if I couldn't see it at times. And my friends Sonny and Dave continued to do video conferences once a month and texting and talking weekly about the issues that weighed on our hearts and minds. One of the most profound aspects of loneliness is that it, by definition, cannot be cured by any kind of each person needs to look out for himself kind of thinking. Indeed, I think that one of the features of U.S. culture, its insistence on rugged individualism, only promotes loneliness. It is literally the case that the only way you can be less lonely is by being more connected to other people. In other words, it's not something you can do on your own. But having said that, the reality is that you can decide to reach out to other people. Loneliness is something that you can address even with small efforts of reaching out to others. In an article titled, We Know the Cure for Loneliness, So Why Do We Suffer? Nicholas Kristof points out that, and now I'm quoting, social isolation probably kills far more people in the West each year than terrorists and murderers, and it costs the public enormous sums in unnecessary health costs. It's interesting to think of loneliness from the perspective of spending on health care we wouldn't have nearly as many health problems if loneliness weren't so common. A wealth of studies show that our social connections increase our chances of survival by about 50%. That's an enormous difference. Christoph speaks from his own experience. As a child, he rode on the number six bus with other children from his community of Yamhill, Oregon. More than a quarter of those children are de dead from drugs, alcohol, suicide, and other so-called deaths of despair. That's Christoph. Just to put that in perspective, Christoph is currently 59 years old, and a quarter of those kids on his bus 
are no longer alive. He makes a really interesting point, one that I had not thought of before. Yes, why weren't there more deaths of despair during the Great Depression? You'd think that'd be the kind of thing that would cause people to give up hope. He writes, I think it's because in the 1930s there were community institutions, churches, men's clubs, women's associations, bridge clubs, bowling leagues, extended families, that buffered the pain and humiliation of unemployment and economic distress. And in some cases, these groups actually stepped up and became more active during times of distress. I couldn't agree more with this analysis. I mentioned the house that I once owned. When it became clear that I needed to move, I started realizing that even though my house was old and cool, most families wanted homes with separate bedrooms and bathrooms for each of their children. Victorian homes simply weren't set up that way. I can appreciate how great it is to have your own room and your own bathroom, but I worried that even these small things may not necessarily be in our best interest, or at least in our best long-term interests. Christoph points out that Britain actually has a minister for loneliness, and that, and here I'm quoting from him, Britain oversees public-private partnerships that collectively knit millions of people together with programs like nature walks, songwriting workshops, and community litter pickups. I have now lived in Britain for almost six years, though I had no idea that there was a minister for loneliness. By the way, just so it's clear, the minister is part of the parliament rather than a pastor of a church. Evidently, Japan also has a minister for loneliness, and Sweden's minister for social affairs has addressed this problem extensively. But Christoph makes a really interesting point. He says, social isolation is the rare malady whose cure is fully known and costs relatively little yet is still so difficult to achieve. In the 20th century, in the 21st century, we are species living atomized lives. Gonna, sorry, have to say that again. In the 21st century, we are a social species living atomized lives. Even when living in a high-rise apartment building in an intensely inhabited city, surrounded by people in every direction, we can still feel bereft and melancholy. We know what causes loneliness, though I'll be addressing this point more fully in the next episode, and thus we know how to fix it. But we're not actually fixing it. It's instructive to me that the Minister for Loneliness in Britain, Stuart Andrew, experienced loneliness himself as a gay teen. He says, I realized that I was gay in my teens. I felt isolated because of where I lived in rural, rural Wales. And I didn't know anybody else who's gay. So that was a bit of a struggle trying to come to terms with that. There are times where I particularly appreciate the British tendency towards understatement, such as when he says it was a bit of a struggle. A bit? I didn't have the luxury of figuring out that I didn't conform to sexual orientation norms until much later in life. But even then, it was considerably more than a bit of a struggle. I am now fully aware of how difficult it is for anyone who doesn't fit heterosexual norms to fit in and to feel welcome. I suspect that loneliness is particularly common in the LGBTQ plus community, which is one of the reasons for Pride Month and the importance of pride as a virtue rather than a vice, 
for those of us in that community. Not surprisingly, Christoph closes this article by suggesting that we return to what he calls old-fashioned patterns like eating meals together, holding parties, and volunteering to help one another out. All three are great ideas. But Christoph points out that addressing loneliness is going to take more than such efforts, as good as they are. He speaks of visiting the working-class neighborhood of Acton in London, where he went to a particular neighborhood center that hosts a family-style lunch for women and children. As Christoph points out, traditionally this role of community building was often filled in America or Europe by a local church or other faith institution, but the decline of religious attendance has left a gap. Again, this is one of the reasons why I've been talking about declining church attendance. It's not just an interest in religion that it's declining. It's that many of the former things that churches or synagogues used to do aren't happening anymore. Interestingly enough, one of the new organizations has written in Britain is the Glamour Club which started in Worthing, a town in England, and it's designed to be a place where people can wear the most glamorous things they own. You might think, well, that sounds kind of frivolous. But if you think back, it used to be that attending church was where you wore your Sunday best. So in a way that might not be evident at first, such a club does end up having some features of a church replacement. And Christoph does eventually address the point that I made about families wanting to have a room and bathroom for every child. He writes, One of the paradoxes of humanity is that while we, along with other primates, evolved to be social creatures, wealth drives us toward solitude. When we have the resources, we stop sleeping a to hut and build a big house with high walls, and each family member has a private bedroom and bathroom. And then to afford the mortgage, we work so hard that we manage never to have meals together. That is probably as good a description of the paradox that one could be find, that one could find. We evolved to be social, but wealth Okay, I'm gonna go back two sentences. That is probably as good a description of the paradox that one can find. We evolved to be social, but wealth makes it impossible. I'm gonna have to start it again. That is probably as good a description of the paradox that one could find. We evolved to be social, but wealth makes it possible for us to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. Moreover, loneliness occurs in demographics that we wouldn't assume necessarily would suffer from this. People tend to assume that older people might be lonely, and some of them probably are. But the reality is that young adults have a sense of loneliness that is twice the rate of seniors. What makes that a frightening statistic is that many young adults are already lonely. What will be their level of loneliness as they age? In an article that first appeared in December 2021 and then was updated in June of 2023, Christina Karen provides what the title of the article says, An Overlooked Cure for Loneliness. She begins with the statement that in 2019, a survey of Americans found that three out of five said they were lonely. She writes, a potential cure? Kindness toward others. Something as simple as volunteering can improve your health, ease feelings of loneliness, 
and broaden our social network, studies suggest. Opportunities to give back, both in person and virtually, are more common than they were last year, and the need for volunteers hasn't let up, especially at food pantries. Volunteering is one of the best, most certain ways we can find a purpose and meaning in our life, says Val Walker, who is the author of 400 Friends and No One to Call, subtitled Breaking Through Isolation and Building Community. Just the title of that book already tells you something. One of the things I realized when I moved away from the States was that the way in which Americans use the term friend isn't all that helpful. It's as if anyone you've ever talked to, even for a few seconds, is a friend. But I think it would be much simpler if we referred to such people as acquaintances, or even just someone I met at a party. The reality is that most of us only have a very few people we can consider to be friends in any strong sense. To be sure, having encounters with people in informal settings can be helpful for loneliness. One thing I like about Scots is that they are so friendly that talking to someone in line at the grocery store is a normal thing. Even those kinds of interactions provide a sense of community. Indeed, I think one of the challenges for all of us is learning how to engage with people around us in subtle or less subtle ways that provide a sense of belonging and connection. In terms of volunteering, the article cites Gary Bagley, executive director of New York Cares, who suggests that one start small. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is to decide, I will volunteer twice every day for the next year, because you burn yourself out on it. So think of something that's manageable for you, not frightening in its scope of commitment, and just take the first step. For some, the kind of volunteering that interests you may come from your more general interests, like political or environmental causes, or perhaps your interest in art leads you to volunteer at a museum. And let me end with a story that illustrates how much comfort and contentment volunteering can bring. When her 20-year-old son, Nick, died from an accidental overdose, Robin Houston Bean had the sense that none of her friends could really understand and help process her grief. But then she discovered an organization that worked with people living on the streets, and that led her to a group of volunteers who did understand and were non-judgmental. That had led her to found a group to support those who had loved loved ones to substance abuse, which I think I did that wrong. That led her to found a group to support those who have lost loved ones to substance abuse, which has since grown to multiple groups around the states. She summed up the change by saying, it takes the focus off my grief and puts it somewhere else. I have this whole real purpose now. That's all for today's episode. In the next episode, we'll be diving into the reasons why human beings experience loneliness. It's literally in our genes. I hope you found today's episode helpful in thinking about loneliness and the ways in which it can be addressed. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is just our email address, unbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.